Good morning, Grace. Let's pray. Father, we do long for the day when your church, victorious, will be the church at rest. But we pray until that day, Lord, help us to struggle with all your powerful energy that works within us. Give us grace, Lord, in your son's name. Amen. All right. I'm going to begin with a question. It's a rhetorical question. Um, So you don't need to actually answer. Uh, Have you ever imagined what it would be like to lose your identity? I don't mean... um, you know, someone steals your identity online, which would be bad enough, but I mean, to actually forget who you are. I mean, you wake up uh, one morning, and not only uh, uh, you look around your surroundings, you don't know where you are, and then you look in the mirror, and you don't know who you are. We've seen that kind of stuff on movies, TVs, right? Um, I've been thinking about it because there's been a story that's been trending in the last couple weeks. Um, precisely that scenario, a Canadian man who experienced some kind of a head trauma on a trip and for 30 years he didn't know who he was. At some point he begins to have flashbacks, right? He's haunting memories. He sees a young man who's, who looks like him but he's living in a different place and he's, he's called something different. Um, eventually the name becomes clear, okay, and the knot, I suppose it was his, just his tortured existence begins to loosen and ultimately unravel. He has a family. <laughs> he has brothers and sisters. He has a home. Wow. I mean, it sounds incredible, but it's true. In fact, I think he's gonna be reunited with his family um, this week. And I'm reading about this as I'm preparing this passage, um, and I began to think about how crucial it is knowing who I am to, um, you know, daily functionality, what I do, you know, from hour to hour. So, um, suppose uh, after the service, um, Ken Sansonetti runs me over in his car, okay, (laughs) in the parking lot. I can. You know, he, ju- he jumbles my brain or something, right? Which wouldn't be difficult. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, what would I do? You know, uh, I sort of wander down the street, right? I'd miss the next service. I'd you know, forget I had grace group, you know, tonight and, you know, uh, classes to teach tomorrow, a family to care about, uh, you know, and on it goes. I know it sounds far-fetched because Ken's such a good driver, right? Uh, but um, our identity right, who we are is so connected to our functions, you know, what we do, because you won't know what you should do unless you know who you are, and trauma, trauma can give us amnesia. I think Peter really gets this, and I think it's important for us to get this too. You see, almost the entirety of First Peter, from the middle of chapter one all the way to the end of chapter five 
is a series of commands and exhortations. In fact, depending on what version you're using, there are about 25, 25 uh, paragraphs in 1 Peter. And there are 35 imperatival verbal forms. That is, commands, admonitions, exhortations. Every paragraph after the introductory blessing is organized around a central command. So, um, 1, 13 through 16, set your hope where it belongs. 17 through 21, uh, live your lives in reverent fear. 21 through 25, chapter one. Love one another deeply, chapter two, right before this, verses one through four. Rid yourselves of every malice, etc. And on it goes. Every single paragraph except the passage we are talking about today. In this paragraph, another verb form dominates, not the imperative do but the indicative, you are. It's almost as if Peter um, sort of stops himself in the middle of this really uh, these important appeals that he's making and says, okay, hang on, hang on. Uh, do you know who you are? Your, your identity, have you got this straight? Well, just in case, just in case, let me remind you. And this is what he says. Chapter 2, verse 4, 1 Peter. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by human beings, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen precious cornerstone and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame now to you who believe this stone is precious but to those who do not believe the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble a rock that makes them fall they stumble because they disobey the message which is what they were destined for but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, Before we get to what Peter actually says about us, I first want to concentrate on something that Peter reveals to us about himself. Namely, this is a person who is steeped in scripture. Here's another interesting fact uh, about this passage. It contains more Old Testament quotations uh, and allusions than any other passage in all of 1st and 2nd Peter, it is a dense forest, okay, of quotations and echoes, uh, reverberations of, uh, of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Essentially, Peter just 
cuts and pastes from his favorite Old Testament texts and uh, expressions and verbiage as he tries to articulate, communicate, portray the true identity of new covenant believers. And this point is not merely academic. I think it's, it's foundational. Another question. Who or what is it that defines your identity? What voices are you listening to? Our culture will try to define you by your paycheck, your GPA, your waist size, your house size, your marital status, etc. That's not who you are. Some of us have been blessed with voices that shape our identity who are interested in our good, right? Positive voices, even when the truth is painful. Others of us have been shaped by trauma, pain, neglect, maliciousness, lies, or or half-truths. Most of us, I suppose, it's a little of both, right? And especially dangerous, I think, pernicious are these half-truths. They're so effective because there's an element of truth in them, right? I'm gonna think about this for a minute. I've always thought that Tolkien gives us such a powerful symbol of the insidious nature of half-truths in the Palantir, okay? These uh, um, seeing stones crafted by the Noldor of old, but Third Age, Middle Earth, controlled by the Dark Lord, Sauron. Those foolish enough to look into this crystal see only what the Dark Lord wants them to see. Hosts of advancing orcs, right? Uh, menacing ring wraiths. Now, the images are true, but they're not the whole truth, are they? That's what the Dark Lord does, leaving his victims terrified. Defenseless, ready to give up, that's what he wants. And that's what the Dark Lord wants. He wants us, he wants us to concentrate on the valley of the shadow of death and ignore the rest of the verse. But I am with you always. He wants us to see vividly, okay, the menacing presence of our enemies, but not the table I have prepared for you in the presence of your enemies. So, how do we overcome this? I wish I could give you an easy answer, quick fix, but if there is one, I haven't found it. However, I am convinced that part of the solution is to change the way we think to intentionally, willfully, determinedly um, correct falsehoods, misinformation, half-truths that we've been fed so many sources for so long. Uh, 
Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, says Paul. Another passage, whatever is uh, true, noble, right, whatever pure, lovely, admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Moving back to First Peter. Um, just a few verses earlier, the end of chapter one, he says, we have been born again through God's enduring word. The passage right before this, he says, and so like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk so that you can grow. And now in this passage, he in effect sort of hands us a bottle and says, drink this. It's a concentrated dose of biblical truth about you, whole milk. It will help you grow. I want us to listen to what he has to say. Now, I'm not going to, as I typically do, walk through this passage verse by verse. Instead, I am going to organize this content under this rubric. Identity markers and identity makers. Identity markers, identity makers. So first, identity markers. These, what I mean here, these are the, um, the truths that Peter says characterize Christians, things that mark us out from others. So for example, uh, he describes us as those who have received mercy in verse 10. In verse nine, he says, uh, we have been called from darkness into light. Now, notice the wholeness of these truths. There is guilt, but there's also mercy. There is darkness, but there's also light where we have been called to dwell. But the defining, the central identity marker that Peter emphasizes here is faith. He says it twice. Verse six, the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Verse seven, to you who believe this stone is precious. Now notice, there is an object to our faith, a person, Jesus Christ. Notice also, the object of our faith has already been dismissed as irrelevant by those around us. Verse four, rejected by humanity but chosen by God. So, to many, our faith, this faith he's talking about is a silly faith, it's a ridiculous faith. Um, you see, I think, it's, I think it's cool to have faith in our society uh, as long as it's not faith in Jesus Christ. It's hip to have faith uh, in humanity, faith in a cause, uh, a faith in spirituality, faith in yourself, faith in faith, right? I mean, we all sing along with Maria when she belts out, I have confidence and confidence alone. I mean, it's catchy, right? Yeah, I admit it. But it's also, it's also a little bit misguided. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, I think there is a place for um, healthy, godly confidence. 
But it's not so much confidence in oneself as it is confidence in Christ who strengthens me, to borrow a phrase from Paul. Or in the words of the psalm I cited earlier, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, so I have all I need. Confidence in the resources God provides, not confidence in our own. So one more thing I want you to notice about the faith that Peter is talking about here, here, this identity marker. It's not a stagnant faith, an idle faith, a, a stationary faith. It is faith characterized by movement. Look at verse four. As you come to him, you are being built up into a spiritual health. True faith Peter tells us, propels Godward movement. It's a striving faith, a hungry faith, an excel all the more kind of faith. Here's another half truth that's hawked about, but this one in Christian circles, it's the idea that works have no necessary connection with saving faith, um, genuine faith. Sometimes it's called free grace, and these folks tell you that fruit isn't a necessary product of genuine faith. It's good, it's expected, but it's not necessary. <sighs> Honestly, I don't know what Bible these folks are reading. I mean, it's not the one I have that begins with Genesis and ends with Revelation. I can tell you that. Hear me well. Saving faith is not faith plus works. It is faith that works. There's no other kind of faith in the New Testament. Uh, any other kind of faith, says James, is just dead faith. It's, it's not faith. Paul, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, these things you do, but faith working through love, that's the full de definition of faith. So if you claim, if you claim to believe in Jesus but that belief has no impact on your life, if it doesn't propel you towards Christ, there's something seriously wrong. The kind of faith that Peter is describing here that characterizes believers is active faith, Christ-word faith. All right, identity makers. Are you ready? Now, what I'm calling identity makers are those truths that Peter emphasizes here, there's many others, but he emphasizes here that constitute our identity in Christ, who we are as believers. Um, as a Christian community, Peter says, he tells us, and I'm just gonna rattle them off, we are living stones being built up into a spiritual house, that is a, a temple, a holy priesthood, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, God's people. Now, we could spend an hour or so just uh, unpacking those, right? But uh, I want to try to encapsulate, encapsulate their content with just two words, belonging and Privilege, belonging and privilege. 
Okay, belonging first. I suppose all of us have had the experience where we felt like we just didn't belong, right? And it's painful. Sometimes we can try to pretend it's not, but it is. And it's particularly excruciating during those years when our, our need for belonging is so intense. Junior high and high school, right? Oh, so glad I'm not there. I know the junior highers and high schoolers are meeting right now, okay? But if there are any stragglers sitting in, trust me, it gets better, okay? Uh, but it never disappears, and that's because belonging is what psychologists call a basic need. It's basic. Um, let me quote a psychologist. Uh, she writes, belonging means acceptance. It is most important, listen to this, for seeing value in life and coping with intensely painful experiences, trauma. So, you know, if you've been cut from the team you don't, or you don't make your promotion or your boyfriend or girlfriend decides to call it quits, okay, those, uh, those tragedies um, are are mitigated, blunted, softened somewhat anyway, you know, by friends, support your family that loves you. I mean, we get that, right? And Peter gets it too. And he wants us to get it. So I want you to remember, Peter is writing to communities of Christ followers who are experiencing, as he calls it, a fiery ordeal, which consists of suspicion, alienation, rejection, persecution. So what do they need to understand? Their identity. They need to know they belong and they belong to the only one that really, really matters. True, they may be exiles as he keeps repeatedly repeatedly calling them, but, and here's a lovely oxymoron, opening verse of this book, but they are chosen exiles. Elect aliens. And he puts them right together. Friends, I think this is where the church in America is heading today. America is quickly becoming a post-Christian society and we are facing an increasingly hostile environment. And I think this is the best thing that could happen to the American church. I want you to remember Paul's words to the Philippians. Not only has it been granted to you on behalf of Christ to suffer for him, I'm sorry, not only has it been granted on behalf of Christ to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Wow, what a gift. Previous generations of American Christians have been blessed with the former. Subsequent generations of American Christians are going to be blessed with both believing and suffering. Now, these descriptors that Peter gives us, these lofty titles, they not only emphasize belonging, they also emphasize privilege. Okay, we are a royal priesthood. Okay, uh, as Protestants, 
living in a democracy. Royal pre- we don't have kings and we don't have priests, right? So this, this language, I think, is, is particularly um, foreign. Um, but Peter is emphasizing their status, their privileged position, um, their identity, so that he can remind them of their purpose, their why, because privilege always entails responsibility, a why. And in verse five and verse nine, he gives us our why, and I want you to hear this, okay? Verse five, you are a holy priesthood, status, so that you may offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse nine, you are a people of his own possession, belonging, so that you can proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Okay, our why as Christians, our purpose is to bring praise, glory to our creator by serving and giving ourselves to others. But unless you are deeply secure in your identity, who you are, you will have a very difficult time serving others. And I have found that the most difficult people to be around are those people who are not secure in their identity because they usually make themselves feel better by putting other people down. It's called insecurity. I should say, I am the most difficult to be around when I. <laughs> okay, that's how I should say it. Um, I want you to contrast that, okay, with, with John's description of Jesus in in John 13, I'll I'll read a few verses. The evening meal was in progress. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, wrapped a towel around his waist and began to wash his disciples' feet. Wow, Jesus' willingness to be a servant was not in spite of who he was but because of who he was. Deeply secure in his identity, his his origin, his destiny because when you have nothing to prove, you have nothing to lose, right? And another reason that Peter is stressing their who, their identity, which will become later, well, I mean, will become clearer later as the, as the, uh, the letter unfolds. This is just a teaser for what follows. Another reason he's stressing their identity um, and their why is because the what <laughs> of their circumstances may change but not their identity and their purpose. Now, no one explains this idea better than this guy. Okay, so I just, I'm not, I'm not gonna try to improve on him. Okay, just, just watch this, all right? Why you have options on what you're what? 
one guy, and he said that he teaches music at a school. I was like, all right, teach me, you know, um, can you sing? And then uh, I'm just going to show you a clip. Check it. Jay, this is on the record. Yes, sir. All right, so um, let me get a couple, let me get a couple bars. It's like uh, Amazing Grace. Can you the first part of that? When you know your why, your what has more impact, right? I'm going to take that one step further. Not only that, when you know your why, the what of your circumstances are not terribly significant. So Paul knew his why, okay, to proclaim the mysteries of God to the Gentiles. So when he is thrown into prison in Philippi, he doesn't start moaning and complaining. What does he start doing? He starts singing the praises of his creator. What happens? The earth shakes. Chains fall off. When you're walking in your why, your purpose, freedom is always the result. Martin Luther King Jr., That's a man who knew his why. He was arrested some 30 times and he used many of these stints in jail to pin some of the most enduring missives of the civil rights era. Letter from a Birmingham jail, right? In one of of his um, 
imprisonments, 1962, he took, the, he took the time, the opportunity to revise one of his favorite sermons on loving your enemies. Contains this memorable line. He who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. That's a man who knows why. Walking in his purpose. The circumstances change, but not his why. I think that's what Peter wants us to understand. It's what he wants these Christ followers to understand who are experiencing persecution. He wants them to know their identity. He wants them to know their purpose. I'm gonna leave you with that today.